When you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. If you're new to the Bible, that's the very first book in the New Testament. It's fine to check the table of contents, Matthew chapter 5. If you are new to Van City and to the Bible or whatever, we've been making our way line by line, one chapter at a time, through this fascinating biography. It's, it was drafted in the first century by someone called Matthew, hence the name. And this biography chronicles some of the life and teaching of what is easily history's most controversial figure, and that is Jesus of Nazareth. Now, before we get where we're going this evening, let's take a look back at where we've been. Matthew 1 through 5, the very beginning of the book, deals with the arrival of Jesus. It's the story of his birth, the Christmas stuff is in there, his upbringing, uh, his baptism, he goes to the desert to be tempted by Satan, it's this whole thing. Jesus essentially comes on the scene and then he's being prepared for what lies ahead in his life. Matthew 5 through 7 is the core teaching of Jesus. This is what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' radical manifesto for what it means to live as his apprentice. In Matthew 8 and 9, we see the teachings of Jesus backed up with the miracles of Jesus. Jesus doesn't just teach as somebody who has authority. He lives and operates in powerful authority as God's promised Messiah. More on that in just a bit. Matthew 10 deals with the mission of Jesus, how Jesus' disciples, his apprentices, will be tasked to go out into the world to teach and to do miracles just as Jesus has been doing himself. And now we've arrived at Matthew 11 and 12, which begin to delve deeper into the person of Jesus. Who is this man really? We've been given insight into his ideas and his upbringing. We've been given insight into his power, the stuff that he's capable of. But now we're going to see more into his actual personhood and identity. Chapter 11 will detail the personhood of Jesus in three stages. You could break it down like this. We're going to begin by seeing that Jesus is, Israel's, Jesus is Israel's promised Messiah. Jesus is the coming judge of the whole world. And Jesus is the one who saves. So tonight the idea is to take on just the first dimension of Jesus' identity. He's the promised Messiah. Before our friend Bethany Allen will be here next Sunday to talk about Jesus as the coming judge. So with all that in mind, let's look at Matthew chapter, chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. You guys ready? Feeling all right? I made this really bad concoction of cold brew earlier. I don't know if you guys have the recipe down or anything, but I just look at it and go, and then I, I can't even tell which flavor is which, and it comes out real weird. But I didn't want to waste it, so now it's up here with me. I'm not going to finish it. You'll see. Oh, sorry. Matthew chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, in context, John the baptizer, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Okay, pause there. Let's do a bit of work here to build some context before we unpack all this. So keep your finger right here in chapter 11 and turn backward to the left in Matthew's gospel to chapter 3. Just a few pages over to Matthew chapter 3. I'm going for it. Ugh. All right, let's read from Matthew 3, beginning with verse 1. It says, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent. 
for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he, John, who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Skip down to verse 11. I, John says, baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for, proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So, we know from early on in Matthew's biography of Jesus that John, the baptizer, who is Jesus' cousin in the story and also a prophet, he's a noteworthy figure in the story, a really important character. Both Matthew, the author of the gospel, and John himself understand that John's role is one prophesied in the Hebrew scriptures to prepare for the imminent arrival of Israel's long-awaited rescuing king or Messiah. And John knows and interacts with Jesus. It's not like he, you know, is yet to see him or anything. He understands that Jesus is the one of whom he spoke when he said that one was coming that's more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He's even reticent to baptize Jesus because he knows all this. And we don't know for sure, the story doesn't say, but it stands to reason that God's voice in the story may have been audible when it actually said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Now in the story, who is standing there in the water next to Jesus when all that happened? John, right, it's not a quick, trick question, John. But a lot has happened since then, if you've been reading. Over a decent stretch of time, Jesus has been traveling, he's been teaching, he's been doing miracles and getting into trouble. Meanwhile, during all this, John the baptizer has been thrown into prison. Now, we'll actually see exactly why when we get to chapter 14, but here's a brief synopsis to make sense of tonight's text. In the first century, if you know the story, Israel was rock occupied by the pagan empire of Rome, and it was Roman policy to appoint a king or a governor in a city that had been conquered or a country that had been conquered. So Rome was in power, but they had given Israel a king called Herod, and Herod worked for Rome. And Herod didn't like John the Baptist for a couple of reasons. One, because Herod was having an affair with his own sister-in-law, and John called him out on that, which is weird. And then two, John was going around preaching to huge crowds that Israel's true long-awaited king had actually arrived. Now, if you're Israel's current king, some dude who's gathering crowds up and saying, hey, the new king is here, he's about to take power and all that stuff, it's probably a tad frustrating. So John... This man who had seen and known Jesus, who baptized Jesus, who believed in Jesus, now has been thrown into prison by Herod for all the trouble that he's been caused, causing. Now, flip back over to the right, Matthew chapter 11. You guys all right? Still good? Great. Let's start back in chapter 11, verse 2, one more time. When John, who was in prison, now that we know how, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, all the stuff Jesus had been doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? So some time has passed, 
And Jesus is looking less and less like the Messiah one might have expected to come. Israel's promised king was widely thought to be this great military revolutionary who would overthrow Rome and restore Israel to glory. Thus far, Jesus has been actively preaching nonviolence to his followers. He's been talking about loving your enemies. He's even performed a miracle for a Roman soldier in the story. Israel's king was widely to believe this incredible figure, a cataclysmic event that's been foretold in the Hebrew scriptures for which John's entire purpose was just to be there to prepare for the thing to happen. But thus far, Jesus has been wandering around the sticks, healing women and poor people and sick people and going to dinner parties all the time. John may have expected to walk behind the mighty Messiah's conquering procession and instead he's in prison and he's awaiting death row. So whereas before John, he was absolutely convinced Jesus is the one he's going to baptize with fire, now he has to go to Jesus or send someone to go to Jesus and ask him point blank, look, are you him or not? You sure don't seem like him, not by a long shot. In other words, John the baptizer has doubts about Jesus. And interestingly, I was reading this week, some early church figures wondered if maybe John was just asking that question for the benefit of his disciples, something that the text doesn't say at all, and really it doesn't infer at all. But one 18th century interpreter looked decidedly into the face of John's question and wrote this. I love this. Where there is true faith, yet there may be a mixture of unbelief. So, that question comes to Jesus, and you can only imagine how such a question would hit him. This is the guy who baptized him, the guy who was there to prepare the way. He's like, are you him or not? How will Jesus respond? Look down at chapter 11, verse 4. Jesus replied, go back, report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now, uh, upon first glance, this may seem like one of Jesus' trademark cryptic riddle responses that he does all the time, but scholars argue that Jesus is actually referencing a number of passages, in particular from the prophet Isaiah, that speak of the, common, uh, the coming Messiah, like this one in Isaiah 35. Be strong, do not fear, your God will come. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Or this from Isaiah 29. In that day the deaf will hear the words of the scroll and out of the gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Once more the humble will rejoice in the Lord, the needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. But this text in particular comes to mind and is cited by most scholars. Isaiah 61 says, The spirit of the sovereign Yahweh is on me, because Yahweh has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. Now, notice what Jesus says is happening. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And John is receiving this message in theory from his disciples. He's in prison. A man who, like Jesus, knew the Torah backward and forward. And I imagine his heart is speeding up when he's hearing this news. Yes, yes, yes. One scholar, N.T. Wright, says it like this. 
No doubt John looked forward eagerly to the day, not long now, when Jesus would confront Herod himself, topple him from his throne, become a king in his place, and get his cousin out of prison and give him a place of honor. So as the message from Jesus is being delivered to John, yes, every single box is being checked one by one. Yes, yes. Then it stops prematurely. Something is missing and a sinking feeling starts to set in. When Jesus alludes to Isaiah 61, he specifically omits one deed missing from the list of the Messiah, and it's this one, to proclaim freedom from the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. In other words, he's sending John a message. Yes, I am him, but John, I'm not coming for you. There's no insurgency gathering around Herod's temple. There's no swords that are going to be drawn. In fact, I've actually forbidden my apprentices from ever using violence. We're not coming to break you out. Jesus is saying, John, listen, I am the one you've been waiting for, but things may be different than you expected. And notice, Jesus ends his message to John with this, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. On this line, one scholar writes this, these are kind words. Jesus does not shame John by saying something like, and blessed is the person who never doubts if I am the Messiah. Words like that would have hurt John because doubt was exactly John's experience. Instead, Jesus pitches his tune low, puts the cookies on a shelf. John can reach and promises in so many words, God bless you, John, if you do not throw the whole thing over because I am a different kind of Messiah than you were expecting. Now, having sent a message to John, Jesus has a few things to say about John. Let's read on, Matthew 11, verse 7. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, for what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Now, this is actually pretty interesting. There were tall reeds that lined the Jordan River where John baptized, but Jesus' word imagery is more than that. King Herod had actually minted coins that on one side boasted his image and on the other side, a Galilean reed. And actually, the line, a reed swayed by the wind, was a euphemism for someone who changes their ideas at the behest of popular opinion. We kind of have the same terms for that today. So Jesus is using all this imagery and figurative kind of double entendre to celebrate John and to critique Herod, the one who locked John up. He goes on in verse 10. This, John, is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women there has not risen among or anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. More on that in just a bit. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he, John, is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, pay attention because this is awesome. Uh, to explain, I'm going to use an analogy from pop culture. This uh, is Phil Tippett. Does anyone know who Phil Tippett is? 
It's fine if you don't. Great. Okay. You'll enjoy this then. <laughs> or, or maybe you won't. We'll see. Um, most of you, even though you don't know who Phil Tippett is, have probably seen Phil's work. In the early 80s, Phil was on the cutting edge of a visual effects technology called stop-motion animation. Using small puppets, if you don't know what stop-motion is, that he and his animator, animators would photograph one frame at a time. Phil provided special effects for movies like Star Wars and RoboCop and Willow. It was a big thing. Now, in the early 90s, Phil was hired by Steven Spielberg to work on a project called Jurassic Park. And that's when a fellow called Dennis Murin enters the picture. Now, Dennis Murin also worked in visual effects. He actually worked on many of the same projects as Phil Tippett. But when Murin and Tippett were both hired to work on Jurassic Park, something happened that forever changed the landscape of cinema and visual effects in general. See, Murin had been on the forefront of what we now call CGI, or computer-generated images. In film, he was convinced that his studio, ILM, could create convincing dinosaurs with computer animation. When Murin showed up some test footage to Steven Spielberg, the entire production of Jurassic Park shifted radically. Up until then, it was going to be stop-motion puppet dinosaurs. And when Phil Tippett saw, for the first time, a, a fully CG Tyrannosaurus Rex, he said, apparently, to Steven Spielberg, I'm extinct. Um, over the course of a single film production, an entire form was almost entirely eliminated from the way visual effects are done in movies forever, from one guy to the next. Before Jurassic Park, Phil was this Oscar, Emmy award-winning visual effects artist. He was sought out specifically to bring realism to fantasy films. He was the dude, the one, and then in one paradigm shift, his medium became entirely antiquated. The other night, actually, I was watching uh, uh, Robocop and Abby wandered into the room <laughs> during one of Phil's legendary stop-motion sequences. She was not convinced. In fact, she was appalled. She was like, why are they running from this toy? Who in the world thinks this toy is scary? Uh, it was funny, I laughed. Now, I realized all that sounds like an excuse for me to talk about the things that I like to talk about, but hear me out on this. Back to Jesus, who says this of John, among those born of women, there's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, he says, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. There has been a massive paradigm shift and what Jesus is saying is not that John's purpose was a wash, it's not some flippant, you know, out with the old, in with the new. Jesus is saying John's remarkable purpose has essentially been served. His mission was effective, but John's mission had a kind of built-in obsolescence. It was, by design, intended to make way for something else. Now, Jesus is saying, everything has changed. It's better to be a nobody in the new era than the greatest man who ever lived in the old era. It's a bit like someone saying, you know, circa 1992 or whatever, man, at this point it would be better to be an intern at ILM than to be a lead animator at Phil Tippett Studio because that's over with. Now it's this new thing. It's not that what came before has no value. It's served to pave the way from one era to the next. And Jesus goes on to say that John is Elijah, which seems like a weird thing to say because John is John. <laughs> Um, and we don't have time to get into all of it tonight, but this is connected to an interesting prophecy in Malachi 5 that predicted that Elijah would actually return to herald the coming of Israel's new king, his, Israel's Messiah. Elijah, if you know the story, is this fascinating character in the Old Testament who doesn't actually die. It's really weird. And to this day, some Orthodox Jews set a place for Elijah at the Passover meal in the event that he shows up again. And Jesus is saying, look, John isn't the literal reincarnation of Elijah. No, 
But if you can understand what I'm really saying, he is the Elijah mentioned in Malachi 5, meaning John has successfully proclaimed the coming of the Messiah. And think about the story. Think about the setting, the context at this point in the story. If John is the Elijah in the story, then who is the Messiah? Jesus, yes. <laughs> it's like, come on, that's the, it's always the answer. At least try that one out. Jesus. Remember, Jesus is this incredible teacher and a clever one at that. Jesus is certainly not opposed to causing trouble. We know that from the story well enough. But he's also really strategic with the work before him and how he goes about it. It's a dangerous thing to stand in front of a big crowd and claim to be the Messiah. Even talking about the fact that there was a Messiah got John locked up in prison. So this is exactly why for much of the early stages of Jesus' ministry, Jesus went around urging people who had a glimpse of who he truly was not to tell anybody who he was, not yet. But Jesus can stand up before a group of people who know the Torah, who know the story of God, and he can speak loud and clear through a kind of coded, cryptic message. This is why he ends by saying, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. In Greek, the language is actually really strong. It's a command. Jesus is saying, listen up. Don't miss this. Listen to what I'm telling you. It's kind of like the nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Do you hear what I'm saying? Okay. You guys all right? Still with me? All right. We're almost there. Stay with me because I'm, I'm convinced that what seems like this tremendously specific encounter between two people under radically unique circumstances is actually of massive relevance for you and I this evening because this is a story about doubt. And this is something that we need to talk about as disciples of Jesus in 2018. So let me begin with this. Let's just get this out in the open. Doubt is not inherently bad. Doubt is normal. Doubt can even be a healthy aspect of your discipleship to Jesus. If you've been around the church for a while, uh, maybe you were at some point led to believe that faith necessitates an absence of doubt. Doubt is always bad. You should never have it. If it comes along, you've got to get rid of it as fast as you can. But that's frankly just not true. In fact, I would argue that faith and doubt are actually companions on the journey of discipleship. Doubt has been strangely equated with disbelief, and those are actually two very different ideas. Doubt is not disbelief, not per se, not necessarily. See, the scriptures depict the idea of faith, something that we talk a lot, uh, about a lot in the church. The scriptures depict faith as a covenantal concept. It is not primary, primarily a psychological concept. That is to say, faith is a pledge of commitment. It's like wedding vows. It's not a state of psychological certainty. Faith is a gesture that is propelled by sufficient evidence in spite of lingering questions and the absence of absolute certainty. Most of us actually conduct the majority of our lives and our decisions this way subconsciously. When you board an airplane, for example, you cannot say with absolute certainty, this plane will not crash. I know this with metaphysical certitude, but you do have reason enough to believe that it'll make it from point A to point B, and so you step out in faith. Every single human being lives and dies by faith. Imagine if someone were to ask you, you know, if you could say with absolute unflinching certainty that there was no way that your plane would crash and, you know, everything is going to be absolutely okay. You can guarantee that. And then you kind of say, well, no. And that person panics. Oh, my God. So you're, you think we're all going to die. This is it. Ah, they start running around. You'd say, like, well, that's ridiculous. It's not what I'm saying. Can I say with 
unequivocal certainty that what I believe to be true of Jesus is all spot on? No, I can't actually, but I'm convinced that it is. And there are a number of reasons for that. It's not just all a total faith guesswork thing. I've based my decision to pursue the way of Jesus on historical data that I believe is there, philosophical data, theological data, experiential evidence. You know, I've heard from Jesus personally. I've seen the things that he does. I've witnessed what I would describe as miraculous things, things like instantaneous healings that can't be explained, lives that have been changed entirely, people hearing from things from God about other people and about other circumstances they couldn't possibly know otherwise. Can I somehow prove that all that stuff happened verifiably and you know, put it under a microscope? No, I can't. Can I somehow prove that the Gospels are historically reliable in every strict sense? No. Can I prove that my experiences of the miraculous were not something else altogether? No. But I have, at this point, more reasons pointing, pointing me toward belief than toward disbelief. So I step out in faith in spite of unanswered questions or lingering doubts. So I, I study and teach the Bible and theology for a living. I'm nearing the end of my graduate studies on both of those things. In the timeline of my life, I've been following Jesus now longer than I have not been following Jesus, and I often have doubts. Part of that is just my wiring and personality, um, always in my head, often melancholy or moody, really big emotions. Ask Abby about it. Uh, number four on the Enneagrams is ancient resource for spiritual formation, if you weren't here when we did that. So there are times when I'm filled with resolute belief by the grace of God. Sometimes I'm empowered by what feels like glorious faith, and there are times when I experience deep, dark doubt. So what do I do with that when it comes? Does it unravel me? Does it break down my whole belief structure and who I am? It's weird that now doubt is a thing that has been strangely romanticized in our culture. It, it seems rooted in this broad sort of stereotype at the moment that faith and belief in God and the Bible, theism, these are sad devices of, you know, the backward and the uneducated and the bigot or whoever it might be. And, you know, the idea is like, man, sure, old fundamentalists in, you know, backwoods Georgia they're hardcore about antiquated notions of God and the Bible, but young millennials in the Pacific Northwest, we know better. We've risen above all that because we have Oprah and her interviews with Rob Bell. We have the liturgists and the newfound atheism of Michael Gunger. We have Eastern spirituality, fusion and food trucks, and we have tantric yoga and transcendental meditation and Instagram and Netflix. And thus, as a result of the changing tide of the herd mentality, which is what that is, doubt and deconversion have become sexy and modern and smart and enlightened, and faith and belief have become outdated and simple and sad. And listen to this. This is not based on any new discovery that's come along. It's, it's no significant scientific data that's made this change. It's, it's a fad. It's actually conditioned groupthink. And this is the best analogy I can think of. If you walk into a coffee shop, maybe you're above all this, but if you walk into a coffee shop with like um, 90s floral couches and like rustic framed photos of horses or something like that, you might think, oh, this place is lame. Um, but if you walk into a coffee shop that's like, you know, stark clean white surfaces and exposed ductwork and Eames furniture, you might think, all right, now this coffee shop knows what's going on. 
And if you have to ask yourself, why? why? Why am I conditioned to think that? And there's a lot of answers, globalizations, trends, groupthink, highly subjective personal preference, the changing tide of trends. We've always had reputable scholars and academics and historians who advocate for Christianity. We've always had that, and we've always had all those same people who denounce Christianity. We've always had artists and writers and philosophers, philosophers who celebrate faith in Jesus, and we've always had those who reject it. We've always had those who wield their discipleship to Jesus for the cause of justice and care for the poor and doing good for other people, and we've always had those who abuse the scriptures for the sake of selfish, satanic ideologies, things like racism and sexism and political agenda. Things have not changed in that regard. That's always been the case. And everyone who dabbles in belief or who follows Jesus outright, all of us experience at least the occasional pull in two directions, belief and unbelief. So why would we celebrate the one who chooses unbelief as a new kind of enlightenment? Because they have a podcast or a book deal or a blog with a cool typeset? Think back to Jesus' strange words about John the Baptist. He said, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. Meaning God's kingdom is growing, it's flourishing, it's spreading, and outside forces desperately want to stop it. Last week, if you were here, Cam talked about violence being done to those who follow Jesus down through history and around the world. But the threat of violent persecution is not really on our radar, at least not in the physical sense. The violent raiding of the kingdom that Jesus is talking about, at least for you and I, is, I think, an assault on belief. So, to end tonight, I want to propose a way forward for you and I through the mire of doubt. The key line in tonight's text is, I think, in verse 6 when Jesus says, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Meaning, blessed is anyone who does not throw it all away when they confront the inevitability of doubt. Doubt is inevitable, not necessarily unhealthy, not necessarily bad. Doubt can enable us to reinforce our faith, to learn and grow and develop as disciples of Jesus. But doubt can also take a toll if we do not use it well. And for some of us, doubt comes easier than faith. I get that. And if that's the case, and really for both of us, faith has to become something into which we are investing. It has to become a practice. We have to invest in our faith. When John was seemingly crippled by doubt, Jesus sent this message back to him. Tell John what you see and what you hear. And this is still the best advice. Go figure. You know that Jesus is on to something. We can still combat the potentially debilitating effects of doubt by seeing the works of Jesus and by hearing the words of Jesus. This is something I'm learning more and more is crucial for someone like me who has a propensity toward negativity. Because there are times when I become so discouraged by what I read in the news, some, you know, something about child abuse or political chaos or racism or police brutality and gun advocacy and the way and on the hills of another mass shooting. And I start to think things like, man, we suck. People suck. Humanity sucks. Or I'll be enjoying some work of art that has like a bleak bent to it, you know, a novel or a song or like a, an episode of Black Mirror or something. And I'll start to feel like, man, everything is bad. Everything is really horrible. But I don't actually believe those things. I really don't. 
And so I have to go out of my way to put myself before things that increase my faith rather than deplete it. And I do this by, one, reading the scriptures every single morning. I do listening prayer. I do imaginative prayer. I specifically ask Jesus to fill my mind with images of his coming kingdom and the redemption and renewal of all things. I need to see what that looks like. I need to be reminded of where we're headed and how that's happening now. Just last week, I was reading this something in the news about something loathsome that was done to a small child, and I felt such despair in my spirit that I just got up from my desk and I walked out down the stairs and down the hall into an empty kid's room here at Compass. And I got face down on the ground and I started to pray for those who do evil to children. And in that, Jesus 